Hound Podcast. Hello and welcome to a Horse and Hound Podcast advertising series. This is the first episode of our new Denji Digestive Health series. I'm Pippa Room, magazine editor here at Horse and Hound, and I have two special guests with me today to help kick off this new series by giving us an introduction to understanding gastric ulcers in horses. So first up, let's introduce Katie Williams, who is Denji's Technical and Product Development Manager. Hi, Katie. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Pippa. Thank you. And we also have here vet Julia Shrub. Hello, Julia. Thank you for joining us too. Hello. Thank you for inviting me to speak. Well, it's great to have you along. Let us get started by getting to know you both a little bit. Katie, how long have you worked for Denji? Give us a brief idea of your training and your previous experience sort of before you, before you came across to them. Sure. Well, I've been at Denji now for 19 years and prior to that, I actually worked for a cereal feed manufacturer. So that was about five years. So very nearly 25 years working as an equine nutritionist now. Um, I'm also just completing my PhD, which um, has been a review of nutrition in the veterinary profession, and particularly focusing on vet hospitals. I've I've got an interest in sort of perioperative nutrition and, and feeding management. So Um, Yeah, that probably summarises my past experience. Mm. And tell us a bit about your role at Denji. What does it involve? Well, there are two main strands, really. One element is creating sort of new products, bringing them to market. Um, And then the other is really the technical support, which includes everything from ensuring we comply with legislation. So that might be the sort of labelling on packaging or um, advertising and marketing rules. And then I would also be involved with things like talks and lectures, writing articles, and also sort of ration planning with key customers. Um, I'm also really fortunate to sit on the BETA um, fee committee. So BETA stands for British Equestrian Trade Association. And they represent the whole of the feed, um, well, the wider industry, but specifically from my role, it's uh, the feed committee um, and also the working party for prohibited substances. So that's where we interact with the regulatory bodies that oversee racing and obviously FBI disciplines too. So it's very diverse and, and no two days are ever the same, which is great from my perspective. Mm, sounds interesting. And Julia, tell us a little more about you. Tell us about your career and your work. So I'm an equine vet. I've been an equine vet for over 15 years. Um, And the last 13 years of that, I've been um, in Cheshire working at Ashbrook Equine Hospital. So part of my time I'm in the hospital and part of my time I'm going out visiting horses um, at their own yard. So I do a bit of everything. I'm a a GP vet, but I also have um, done further study and further qualifications in, um, in internal medicine. Um, so I've been doing that for the last nine years, which means I enjoy the challenge and um, diagnosing, treating things like liver disease, respiratory issues and gastrointestinal problems, to name just a few. Mm. OK, so let's get going by talking a bit about the horse's digestive system. And I think that anybody who's ever had anything to do with a horse will know that uh, horses can be quite delicate beasts with their uh, digestion. They look so big and tough, but that's not really the case. <laughs> Julia, perhaps you can start us off. Give us a bit of an overview of that digestive system and how it works in sort of layman's terms. Absolutely. And I completely agree. They are a delicate beast. And when you actually look at how horses' digestive systems are put together, it's no wonder they don't have more problems, to be honest. But um, horses are obviously mammals and and most mammals uh, we have evolved with uh, stomach leading to the small intestine and then leading to the large intestine and most uh, mammals are based on that so 
Horses, like us, can digest um, some starch uh, or some carbohydrates, some protein, some fat, but actually they get most of their calories from, um, from plant material. So they're herbivores. So plant material has cellulose, the hard cell walls. And we, if we just ate plants, we would soon wither away. But horses have evolved along with all the other herbivores to be able to get calories and energy from that. And there's two broad ways of doing that. Uh, hindgut fermenters and foregut fermenters so um so things like cows and sheep have several stomachs and they have big fermentation vats right at the beginning of their gastrointestinal tract to digest this cellulose whereas horses have got massive hindguts um, so large large intestines where they um digest um the, the plant material there so another mammal that would be quite similar to a horse would actually be a rabbit but um, so technically, horses actually don't digest the cellulose themselves. They rely on all the trillions of microscopic uh, microbes, mainly bacteria, in their gut to break down the cellulose, and then they actually absorb the byproducts of that of that digestion. So I often like to think we're not actually feeding our horse; we're actually feeding the the trillions of microbes in in the horse's gut. So it's really trying to um, to understand that they ferment the cellulose, the hard plant walls in the, in the large intestine, and that's how they get most of their calories. Okay, and tell us about what can go wrong in, in, in that system. What are the sort of the, the most common problems that, that you might see in, in horses' digestion? Absolutely. So colic is probably the most common thing that goes wrong with the digestive system. So all colic means is that there is abdominal pain or, or belly ache. Um, and most of the time we take that to mean pain associated with the digestive system. And colic is a very common problem. Um, but what we have to remember is that the majority of horses with colic will have spasmodic or gassy colic. Um, over 90% of horses with colic will have that with those types. Um, and that's just anything that affects the motility or the gas production. And sometimes we don't know why certain horses will get um, uh, an upset uh, with um, the digestive system leading to gassy or spasmodic colic. But anything that can upset those trillions of microbes, so change of feed, um, even just new grass growth, change of weather, anything that upsets those microbes can give different feed to those microbes and suddenly produce a lot more gas and can lead to gassy colic. That's probably the most common type of colic we see, but obviously everybody fears the more serious types of colic. And it's really not surprising when we look at the anatomy of the horse that we see these serious colics. There are a huge, there's a large amount of small intestine, often about sort of 20 meters or so that can go all over the place. And there's various places it can go and get stuck or wrapped around things or you commonly find fatty lumps in the in the abdomen, which can wrap around bits of intestine. And then the large intestine is anchored in one place to the body wall and, and is laid out in a certain way, and but is very, very movable. And if it twists around on itself um, and there's various different ways it can move, it will affect the blood supply to the intestine, um, affect the forward progression of the food through the intestine. But um, if the blood supply is affected, then the the gut will start to die off um, and then that it obviously is very serious and these surgical colics if you like the only way we can um, fix them is by physically repositioning the gut back to the 
correct place and if it is too compromised the, the blood supply to that gut has been compromised for too long um, and we can't save that particular bit of intestine then that might need to be removed so basically when you look into the anatomy of, of horses it's surprising that it doesn't go wrong more more often so colic is probably the most common um, there are lots of things that can affect the digestive system we obviously see horses with diarrhea relatively frequently too and then stomach ulcers is also a very very common problem hmm. and we're going to talk a bit more about stomach ulcers and just to kick us off there are a couple of different types aren't there absolutely so horses are quite unusual in that they um have two parts to their to their stomach so they have two um two very distinct parts where with different linings so the the bottom part of their stomach is lined by um what we call glandular epithelium or um, so we call that the glandular part and that is very similar to our stomachs and other animals carnivores um where it produces lots of acid produces enzymes to break down the food the top part of the stomach is lined by something called stratified squamous epithelium and we'll often call this the squamous part of the stomach the lining in this top part is actually very poorly uh, resistant to acid um, it has not evolved to to be um, particularly good with acid which seems like a, a design flaw really um, but actually horses have evolved to eat uh, to graze a large portion of the time and to trickle feed and actually in a normal grazing horse if you go into their stomach you'll see like a fibrous mat and actually all the acid the very low ph will be down the very bottom of the stomach and this top part of the stomach um, isn't very acidic at all um, so actually it doesn't matter that this uh, in a in a sort of normal um, environment that this squamous epithelium the lining of this top part is a very resistant to acid but that squamous epithelium is the same um, type that lines our esophagus so the going down into the stomach so the analogy in people would be similar to sort of heartburn as acid goes up the esophagus um, it's just that horses have this lining in their stomach as well so yeah when we're talking about ulcers we really stomach ulcers we really need to know which type we're talking about um, because there are two very distinct types um, and we know a lot more about the risk factors and the dietary influences of squamous ulceration so that's ulcers affecting the top part of the stomach and we know a lot less about the risk factors um, of the glandular ulcers down at the bottom part of the stomach um, but we have been um, looking and diagnosing those for probably 10 15 years now so often when people talk about ulcers they're talking about the top part but um we do need to differentiate and know what we're talking about because they have different treatments hmm. and uh, those those different types of ulcers are often referred to by abbreviations aren't they julia can you just run us through those two abbreviations that we might quite commonly hear yeah so um people um will refer to them as esgd and EGGD, so equine squamous gastric disease and equine glandular gastric disease. So if you see that written down, that's what that's referring to. I often just refer to them as squamous, the top part, and glandular, the bottom part, to keep it nice and simple. That seems much more simple to me. When I see those letters, I'm, uh, I, I, I always have to double check, but uh, we remember that squamous is ESGD and glandular is EGGD, and squamous is the one that we know more about. That's right, isn't it? 
That's correct, absolutely. And we also just call it disease because actually some of these are ulcers, but down the bottom of the stomach, around the pylorus, so that's the outflow where it turns into the small intestine, where we often get some glandular disease. They can be very typical ulcerated areas, but they can also be quite raised or uh, bleeding, or there's a whole lot, load of different things. So they, we do refer to them as ulcers, but they're not all technically ulcers in the true sort of scientific definition of the term. Mm. Okay, well, thank you, Julia. It's good to get some uh, some real good science on what's happening here. Katie, let's bring you in again to highlight some of the risk factors. What sort of things make it more likely that a horse might suffer from a problem like gastric ulcers? Yeah, well, I think um, in the squamous area of the stomach, the, the two key factors that we're probably most familiar with are low forage intakes and um, higher levels of cereal-based feeds being used. So effectively the lack of forage um, and then the cereals on top of that can increase the acidity levels. So without any forage in the stomach, you've effectively got an empty vessel. And then once the horse actually starts to move, um, the acid and the more acidic contents can then splash around. And Frank Andrews is a researcher based in the US and um, was presenting at one of the conferences over the summer. And he's describing that anything above a walk counts as exercise in this context. So it does explain perhaps a bit more now why we understand this to be an issue, not just for the elite sports or performance horse. It's actually an issue for a range of horses and, and ponies. And there can be various reasons why horses are on limited forage. It's, it's often typically done for those in high level competition, have reduced forage rations, but also if it's part of a weight management um, programme for a really good doer, you may well have to be re restricting their forage intake and certainly their time at grass. So all of those can be contributing factors to ulcers in the squamous region of, of the stomach. Um, so the sort of well, glandular sort of type of problem, then stress is very much a contributing factor. Um, and I'm sure that's something that Julia will expand on when you're sort of trying to treat and, and manage these these horses, because it's it's increasingly recognised as being a very difficult issue to, to treat in some cases. Mm. So Julia, coming back to you, if you were presented with a horse which had, had ulcers of either of these types, what sort of symptoms would you be seeing that would ring the alarm bells for you that would make you suspect that that was what the problem was? So yeah, any horse that is not performing at their full potential, potentially has has some gastric ulceration. So um, we often think of girthiness, moodiness, um, biting when the girth is, is, rugs are being done up and the girth is being done up. Those are definitely linked with ulcers, but there are plenty of horses that demonstrate those behaviours that do not have any degree of gastric ulceration at all. Squamous ulcers, the, the top part of the stomach, often tend to be associated with um, lower body or poorer body condition and sometimes people um, will say that their horses are really picky or slow eaters whereas glandular ulcers tend to present in horses of, of all body condition scores um, and often they are very good eaters so there is a lot of overlap and there's no there's not any specific signs that would say yes definitely your horse has got gastric ulcers so basically the bottom line is is if anybody suspects that their horse might have gastric ulceration or has had a change in behavior or is not performing at their full potential it is worth just checking um booking the horse in for a gastroscope just to check to see if there is any gastric ulceration because you can't tell from the signs and symptoms alone
Mm. So Julia, tell us about that gastroscope. Is that how you would go about making a full diagnosis? Absolutely. It is the only way to, do, to, to diagnose um, gastric ulcers. You actually have to physically have a look. Um, there have been various tests um, brought out over the years, including looking at um, fecal samples to try and rule in or rule out uh, gastric ulcers, but none of them are sensitive or specific enough. So, i.e. they're not good enough to confidently rule in or rule out gastric ulcers. So gastro gastroscopy, which is where we pass a camera up the nose, swallow it and down into the stomach to have a look, is the only way to diagnose to diagnose gastric ulcers and it sounds really invasive and not very nice but horses tolerate it very very well um what we have to remember that they don't have the strong gag reflex like we do um, and i actually think that the worst part for the horse is actually that they have to be starved for this procedure um, the actual procedure itself is a relatively safe procedure and is just done under some very mild sedation um, as much sedation as you would typically give say for a dental um, not not very much at all so the the camera is um, on a three meter plus scope so that is a long flexible tube that um, that then is attached to a computer so we can see um, at the end there's a, a light source and a camera and it goes up the nose which is probably the, the second worst part for the horse because it's a bit tickly as it goes up the nose then they swallow it and we slowly go down into the into the stomach which is hopefully empty. Um, we will usually starve a horse um, for at least 12 hours. We need it to be completely empty. Um, otherwise, we can't see all the parts of the stomach. Um, once we get into the stomach, we will put some air in to insufflate the stomach so we can visualize more of it because often it is quite collapsed. I often explain to people, and this is maybe a little bit crude, but the stomach in a horse is a bit like a toilet in terms of you get in there and you've got the main bowl um, and there's usually a little bit of fluid at the bottom however much starved they are um, and it's a bit you've got a bit of a u-bend and then the out the, the glandular part which is often affected is under that u-bend and then um, up the other side and then that goes into the small intestine there so often when we get in we can see the squamous part really nicely to start with but to get down and see to the the very bottom part of the stomach we've kind of got to go around a bit of a corner and then under a u-bend to have a look up there so it can be a little bit tricky but usually it's a, a very very quick procedure that we can see uh, most most gastroscopes now um, go onto a laptop so everybody can see exactly what um, is happening in real time. We'll have a look, we can take pictures, um, take photos. If there's any food material stuck to the wall, we have water that we can flush, flush it off. And we will have a look at all the different, different parts of the stomach. And then when we're finished, we will suck the air out that we've put in um, and then come back out again. Um, and then the horse um, is just reintroduced to food over a few hours and, and can carry on and be ridden as normal from the next day. So it is a it is a relatively safe procedure. There is a very, very small risk of um, colic. Um, but I think a lot of that depends on making sure that all the air that you put in is removed. And if we do that, it, we see very, very few problems at all. There is a small risk of giving them a nosebleed as, as the scope goes up the nose. But again, it it's, doesn't bother the horse. It just makes a mess. So that that's the gastroscope. Um, Can I add, um, I just think it's interesting when we've weighed horses before and after a scoping, so all being 
sort of feed withheld for a uh, scoping, they actually change in weight between around 17 and 20 kilos. So that basically gives you some idea of just how much sort of food and material is in their digestive system. Um, and that that comes you know, out obviously overnight because they're not replenishing it because they have feed withheld um, prior to the scoping. It's just you know, nearly the equivalent of a bag of feed basically in, the, in their digestive system at any one, one time, which I always just find really, really interesting just how much they're, they're holding in their digestive tract. Mm, that is interesting. And so is it sort of overnight that a horse would have to be starved before that procedure? Is that the length of time? Yes, we usually just starve them overnight. Um, so um, just take their food out last thing at night and then we usually scope in the morning. Um, we, do, we can scope all day. Um, one of the reasons we will do it in the morning is because naturally horses will eat less food overnight than during the day anyway. But also some work come out of Australia has shown that actually standing for several hours not eating overnight has a lot less also risk than standing for several hours during the day without any food. So most of the time when we're, we're doing this, we'll starve them overnight and, and, and do the gastroscopy in the morning. Hmm, we don't want to give horses ulcers as well. We're trying to diagnose them. Um, and, uh, and, and just to be clear on that, that starving them of food, are they still able to have water during that period or do you withhold water as well? So um, we don't withhold water. In the past, people have withheld water and some people still might, but we find no problem at all um, have, letting them have free access water right up to, uh, to the scoping. Mm, okay, really interesting to hear about that. So if you did that procedure and you found that a horse was suffering from, from some ulceration, what sort of treatments would you then put in place, Julia? So it depends on whether you see squamous ulcers, glandular ulcers or both. But if you see squamous ulcers, which is um, what we know a lot more about um, and has been diagnosed for, for many decades now, we know that this is an acid problem. We know there's acid injury to this not very um, well resistant squamous lining to the top part of the stomach. So we would start them um, on the licensed product that can reduce acid, which is a meprazole. Um, this is a... Um, People call it, it's a proton pump inhibitor, but basically it reduces the amount of acid that the stomach is producing. And it's a very, very effective treatment in the majority of horses. So almost all horses will improve with four weeks of omeprazole. Um, and often um, it can be a shorter course than that. Um, we also then need to look, um, which I'm sure Katie is going to talk more about, is the, the diet. Um, as you've already alluded to, the amount of forage and the amount of starch is absolutely key. Um, and we need to look at um, if there's other sort of stresses and the amount of um, exercise we're doing. We know it's often related to, it can affect all types of horses, but if you were doing fast exercise, you are much more likely to have this type of ulcer than if you're not doing fast exercise. So with squamous ulcers, it's really about looking at management changes and emeprazole, of which there are a couple of licensed versions of it. If we've got glandular ulcers, um, we will still reduce the amount of acid that the stomach is producing, usually the first line being omeprazole, um, but it's not quite as, as simple as treatment. It often is a bit more prolonged. I will usually warn owners that it will often take a couple of months to get complete resolution. We may add in um, something called sacralfate, which um, just binds to ulcerated mucosa. So. I almost think of it as a bit like a plaster sticking to any ulcerated area. Um, and there are other drugs as well that can help reduce acid and um, 
can be more useful in, in glandular ulcerations. What we don't know is how much diet influences glandular ulcers. And I think we lump them all together, but there are probably lots of different types of glandular ulcers that we haven't quite teased apart yet. But certainly it doesn't seem to be linked with fast exercise. It seems to be linked with frequency of exercise. Um, so some experts are actually saying, you know, make sure you give your horse um, at least a day or two off a week. And we know that um, warm bloods, of which obviously a lot of competition horses are warm bloods, but warm bloods um, are very overrepresented um, with this problem. So basically, if you have a warm blood, they are much more like and, and manage it in exactly the same way as another uh, breed. It's much more likely to have glandular ulcers than another breed, even if you manage it in exactly the same way. Oh, that's really interesting. And we hear, I think, quite a lot about ulcers recurring and it being a problem that uh, that's difficult to sort of get get rid of once and for all, so to speak. And Katie, I think you can tell us about the uh, the various studies around the recurrence and why this happens. Can you give us a bit of detail on that? Sure. I think um, at the moment, there's pretty much one study really from 2019 that compared um, the impact of making dietary change alongside the use of omeprazole. So um, the diet in the horses where they changed it was taken down to below one gram per kilo body weight of starch. Um, and then the other horses, um, if you compare the original diet at three and a half grams, so it was quite a, a you know, a drop in, in the amount of starch being fed. So that three and a half grams, to be fair, is fairly typical of the typical racing and sports horse rations that are traditionally used. Um, when using omeprazole actually resulted in improvements in, in both groups, but those with the worst grade, so sort of three and above, it was those where the improvement continued if the diet was changed, but actually the situation worsened in those left on the high starch diet. So what that's basically showing is if, if you really want to tackle this issue, yes, of course, you've got to use medications and treatments, and um, but the dietary management seems to be you know as crucial. So um, yeah, in that study, they were specifically looking at reducing starch intake and um, they didn't look at the impact of forage. So to sort of put that into effect, what sort of diet and, and management changes would you be recommending to an owner whose horse had been diagnosed as ulcers, been treated and was really keen to try to avoid them returning? What would you be recommending? In that scenario, then feeding plenty of forage is, is crucial, ad lib if possible. And I suppose really the only time that it wouldn't be recommended is for your sort of good doer or you know something that's um, overweight or obese already. Um, turning out as much as possible is, is generally recommended but again there are exceptions to the rules so that's where knowing your own horse comes in some actually don't spend a lot of time when they're out eating they can be walking up and down the, the fence line pacing and and sort of actually more stressed being outside and, and not eating so that's where knowing your own animal is really important and um, alongside ad lib or as much forage as you can in relation to their weights, then using um, fibre and oil in the bucket feed rather than defaulting to cereals, which have those high starch levels, is, is key. So high quality fibre sources, things like sugar beets, alfalfa, um, are going to be low in starch, but still gives the energy that the horse needs to work or maintaining condition. And then if you need more energy on top of that, then you, you go towards using oil. So micronized linseed is a, another good example of a high oil um, feed stuff that would be relatively low in starches as well. So the better quality forage you can use means you've got less reliance on cereals. So all the time we're trying to allow the horse to get more out of the forage we're putting in. Um, 
and that has benefits to the health of the digestive system all the way all the way through um but yeah if we can make sure that we know what we're putting in to sort of make sure we know how much the horse is consuming especially if they're out in groups in in fields older horses obviously um tend to have poorer teeth and they're not able to consume quite so much in the same time period as younger horses so it's it's making sure that you give your horse every opportunity to eat as much forage and have plenty of time to eat their allocation um in addition trying to avoid exercising on an empty stomach is key so if they haven't had ad lib forage access overnight before if you're riding in the morning then maybe feeding a handful of chopped fiber 20 to 25 minutes before you exercise just so you've got a fibrous mass in the stomach to try and stop that acid splash um i think it's actually interesting to note when we did a survey actually with horse and hound back in 2018 the majority of people i think it was something like 85 percent knew that this was a good strategy this putting a handful of fiber in before you ride and um, but only just over half were actually doing it so you know there's a it's applying all this knowledge and making sure we do it and we do it regularly and consistently to make sure you know we reduce the risk wherever we we can and um katie i think the denji has a new product on the market which could be useful to some owners who are trying to do the best by their horses and, and sort of keep them free of ulcers can you give us a bit of an introduction to that uh, that new feed and what's gone into developing it Sure. Well, along with the sort of studies we've done and as part of my PhD, actually, I've been sort of researching why we still in all this uh, modern world with lots of information available, why we still have this issue with so many horses and ponies being overweight. And one of the recurring themes seemed to be that um, people are so worried about ulcers that they are feeding lots of lots of forage and actually not sort of knowing when to stop almost. So horses are um, becoming obese and overweight because people find it really hard to, to limit their forage intake knowing the risks associated with it. Um, yeah, one of the areas we've been looking at is how we can try and make it very easy for horse owners to identify low-calorie feeds that are ideal for those horses and ponies that tend to hold weight um, easily and have a tendency to become overweight and trying to um, introduce a product that has some additional benefits so things like yeast and prebiotics to help um, with gut health as, as well so yes that's the sort of direction we've gone with our new product and traditionally i think ulcers um have been associated with horses that tend to lose weight or poor do it not necessarily great condition coats looking quite dull those kind of characteristics and so our, our products have been sort of mid to high energy and you know with high oil content to help address all of those issues so the the latest one really is very much the sort of lower calorie end of the market because there are people with good doers that are really struggling to know what products to use if, if they're concerned about ulcers without promoting too much weight so yeah and the new one is very much the ulcer light end of the market Mm, and hence its name, as you say, Ulcer Light. So give us a bit of detail on that new feed, Katie. What is in it? What what would our horses be eating if we decide to feed it? So it, it's low calorie and therefore we, we have to utilise um, straw to give us the fibre without too much else, quite frankly. It's, um, it's a great source of uh, fibre for promoting chewing. Chewing increases saliva production and saliva, again, is one of the mechanisms by which the horse regulates acidity levels in, in the stomach. So the more we can have the horse chewing, 
um, the better. Now, there has been some concern about the use of straw in the context of ulcers, but it was very much um, a study done in Scandinavia and the horses there are fed a really high proportion of straw. So when it's the sole forage, so no other forage type used or the majority, there is an increased risk associated with straw. But as an ingredient, as part of a ration where you're using other types of forage, it's absolutely fine to use. And we have actually had a, a subsequent sort of follow-up survey that confirmed that, which was published in 2021. And in that scenario, they actually replaced half of the haylage with, with straw in the in the forage um, ration to make you know, sure that you know, even at half the, the intake, it was safe to use. So I think straw is a really useful ingredient for these good doers where we want the fibre, um, but we don't want too much uh, or too many calories and, and certainly not too much sugar as well. So that's the, the core. We then have some chopped grass, which we, we dry um, using um, hot air. So it's, it's tumble dried grass in effect, um, which makes it very nutritious. So again, we're using very low levels just to try and tempt horses. Um, a little bit of natural sweetness comes through from the grass. And then we've got the alfalfa pellets for their natural buffering properties. And again, research in the US has explored the use of alfalfa on I think probably numerous occasions now and, and its benefits for ulcers. So um, it's an ingredient that we're going to have in there for its, its natural buffering. And then a light coating of oil, again, to keep the calorie content down. Oil is very energy or calorie dense, so we can't use too much of it. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, we've got the sort of phosphobiotics and yeast. So they're in there to help digestive health and promoting the, the microbes that live in the gut that Julia mentioned at the beginning. And, and they're throughout the digestive tract, predominantly in the hindgut. And obviously that's where we um, have other potential issues that can go wrong. So we're, we're thinking about the whole of the digestive system with this product as well. Mm. And of course, this is not the first product the Denji have produced, which is useful for horses which which suffer from ulcers. In the range as well, there's Denji's Healthy Tummy, Alpha A Oil and Performance Fibre. They're all independently approved by BETA, that uh, British Equestrian Trade Association that Katie mentioned earlier. So they're approved by BETA for horses and ponies prone to equine gastric ulcer syndrome. Katie, give us a little bit of overview into how this product fits into that range of products that Denji have and how the feeds sort of can complement each other or how they might be used in different sorts of horses, different sorts of cases? Sure. Well, also light is the lowest calorie and because it's a straight feed, it can actually be used as a, a forage replacer. So if someone is really struggling to find a, a low calorie forage for their good doer, then you could replace some or potentially all of it in, in some cases um, with this feed so that you can bring the sugar and the calorie levels right down. So, so that has um, real benefits in both this sort of forage part of the ration and, and the bucket seed as well. Um, the other products tend to be higher energy. Um, Healthy Tummy has actually long been my favourite product, although I think it might just now be usurped by um, Performance Fibre, which is one of the other that is um, approved by the beta um, sort of approval mark. And with those, it's it's all about trying to create as palatable a feed as, as possible. And um, you know, with super fit racehorses, when you know, potentially in pain when they're eating because it combines really soft grass and the alfalfa with spoon and oil, it smells divine. <laughs> also <laughs> seem to love it. And it's very gratifying that trainers actually value it now so much that they fly all around the world for their racehorses competing abroad. So um, I think that speaks volumes for a fibre feed because it's historically not been um, 
shall we say, the main focus of, <laughs> of their feeding strategy. Um, and healthy tummy is still very much the best option for those who want or need um, lower sugar options, but it's nutritionally um, sort of balanced with vitamins and minerals. So if someone has limited space in the feed room um, or kind of wants the convenience and the sort of stress taken out of feeding because it's all done for them, it's everything in, in one bag. And, and that very much still has its has its place um, for horses that are competing, need a bit of extra condition. Um, just the, the oil in there is at a really good level for helping with coat condition as well. Um, and finally, I think the, the fourth one that we have approved is alpha oil, and that's still the go-to feed because it's um, the highest in energy or calorie terms. So it's all slow-release energy, and that's why we tend to use terms like energy and calorie interchangeably because when we say high energy, people think it's going to be sort of rocket-fueled or make their horse really fizzy, and, and that's not the case. It just calories as a way of measuring energy. But when we talk calories, we think more along the lines of weight gain or weight loss. So... Um, it's the highest energy or highest calorie feed with the um, slow release energy, making it ideal for those horses competing at high levels. And um, Alex Bragg might be a good example, who I think we're going to meet later in the in the series. And um, it really helps to fuel those horses competing at high levels, but without sort of blowing the lines. Um, and because it's just oil and alfalfa, it's naturally very low in starch, around 2%, which when you compare it to a cereal-based feed of a similar energy value, in many cases, it's at least five, in some cases, 10 times less starch. So you can see where it really helps in the, in the context of ulcers. Mm. It sounds like there's some, some great options there um, for horses that have either been diagnosed previously with um, ulcers or, or, or at risk of them. Um, people, owners often ask us about all the, the hundreds of different supplements that are available. Um, and I just wanted to, to chip in with that actually a lot of the supplements that are available that you can buy from various tax shops and things are based on antacids. So calcium carbonate or aluminium hydroxide uh, as a couple of examples. Um, in the horse, because they produce acid most of the time and these antacids are very short acting, they actually have less effect than we might think from reading what it says on the side of the tub. But I just wanted to go back to what Katie said about um, giving fiber before exercise that is absolutely um, a key thing to do in, in preventing squamous ulcers and actually we can actually add these antacids in in that feed then as well just to help buffer the acid for the half an hour 45 minutes that those antacids would then work while the exercise is being done so there is a place for a lot of the supplements that you might see on the shelves well, I, th I think it's a really valid point as well, because um, with the beta approval mark for um, horses and ponies prone to equine gastric ulcer syndrome, and it is long-winded for a reason, because um, it's approved or the approval process requires all of our marketing materials, our packaging, etc., to be submitted to the Veterinary Medicines Directorate. Um, and they exist for a reason. You know, they protect people in the sense that um, anyone wanting to put a, a drug or a medication onto the market, um, you know, they have to spend millions of pounds testing its safety, efficacy, all of those sorts of factors that you know mean when you use these drugs, you've got every chance of them working. Um, and it's not fair as products that are you know, don't have all that research and are not medicines, they can't be put out there and presented to be medicines. And that's why it's really crucial that we have this approval mark process because 
the VMD make sure that um, we're not making any false claims, anything we can't substantiate. That when it comes to feed, it's very much an approach of how we try to reduce the risk of it's suitable for animals prone to, but we mustn't, and rightly so, shouldn't try to claim that going to treat, cure, or prevent. And um, you know, and I think that's a really valid point to to make. Mm. Thank you, Katie, and, uh, and and thank you, Julia, for, for chipping in there as well to, uh, to, to add that insight. It's uh, really, really good to have both of your thoughts. I think we're nearly ready to wind up for today, but uh, just before we do so, Julia, can you give us a couple of takeaways? People obviously have short memories and uh, they're probably listening to this while they're running or driving their car and they'll get out and go off for the rest of their day. And if they were only going to remember two or three things about gastric ulcers, what would you want them to remember? Okay, I think... If you are worrying that your horse or horses have gastric ulcers, just get them booked in for a gastroscopy. It's relatively cheap and safe and quick, and you might be pleasantly surprised. I think we should feed all horses, unless they are um, overweight, and um, but we should feed all horses as if they have ulcers. And if they are overweight, there are ways um, of, as Katie has eloquently described, of, uh, of feeding them as to prevent ulcers while still reducing their calorie intake. And if your horse has been diagnosed with ulcers, treat them. But what we need to remember is that actually that might not be the cause of the, the problems that you're seeing. So we have to look at the whole horse and, and have a bit of a holistic approach. Mm. And Katie, what about you? A couple of key takeaways. Yeah, I think it's, it's key to... Um, to try to work collaboratively. So if you are getting veterinary input and you're going to the lengths of having a gastroscope and you know, you're sort of um, concerned about what to feed then you know, getting your whole team together to talk and discuss it um, often helps to ensure that everybody's on the same page and you're going to get the best results um, and don't just sort of um, don't get too disheartened if it takes a while. I think Julia alluded to earlier that these things can take time and sometimes improvement um, is you know, a, a result in itself so um, keep at it and you know just because you haven't seen a, a dramatic change after a few weeks with you know the diet it takes time for these things to to come together so stick with it and um, you know, believe in what you're doing if you've got the right advice from your professional support network then you know, go with it. Mm. Well, thank you very much, Katie, and thank you to Juliet too for joining us today. You've given us so much really great insight into gastric ulcers in horses, their diagnosis, the treatment, and of course, that real crucial point about preventing reoccurrence. Thank you, Katie. Thank you, Julia. Bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you. We will be back in two weeks' time for the second episode of the Denji Digestive Health Series when we'll be talking specifically about feeding the performance horse to treat and avoid gastric ulcers. Katie will be back with us then and we'll also be joined by five-star event rider Alex Bragg. Talk to you then. Bye.